You're listening to a sermon by Hope Bible Church Niagara. We believe in unapologetic preaching, unashamed adoration of Jesus, unceasing prayer, unafraid witness, and uncommon community. If you have yet to do so, we would love to have you join us for worship in God's Word on Sunday mornings. For more information, visit us online at hopeniagara.ca. Thanks for listening. Well, good morning, Hope Niagara. Great to see you this morning. Great to hear you singing these songs of uh, worship. And uh, just before we get into the uh, message for today, I want to double down on Pastor Tim's announcement about next weekend's men's conference, uh, free indeed, uh, Friday night and Saturday. Looking forward, men, to seeing you there. Uh, If you've not yet registered, don't worry, don't panic. There's still time. You can do that. I'm looking for I'm looking for you to be here, men. This is a weekend for us set aside, important for us to gather together in worship and in fellowship. And uh, maybe you got some some calendar juggling that you're going to need to do. I want to encourage you to do that, uh, to make way to come and not only come yourself, but also let others know. Think of other men in your life who you might uh, uh, want to invite, encourage them to come. Uh, so that's next weekend. Let's is $50. It's going to include all the, the conference uh, sessions, obviously, but also uh, there's breakfast and lunch on Saturday. Like how that's, that's just amazing, breakfast and lunch. And uh, please, please listen, listen. The, there are, these are difficult times for lots of people. And if the $50 is a problem, seriously, if the $50 is a problem, listen to me, listen, it's not a problem. Okay, we'll take care of it. You just let us know, and it's a done deal. Okay, we want you. We want you to be here. We want you to be here. I'm looking at the men in the room, trying to make eye contact with all of you. Really want to encourage you uh, to to come. Can you just turn down my mic just a just a hair, please? That would be great. I want you to turn your Bibles, please, to Revelation chapter two, verses eighteen to twenty-nine. Uh, Revelation two, verses eighteen to twenty-nine. If you don't have a Bible with you, no problem. We got you covered right in the the back of the pew in front of you there you should see a little kind of a black bible maybe it's dark blue i don't know it'll say bible on it grab hold of that and page 966 and uh, or of course if you got the bible app on your phone that works well also uh, but revelation 2 was he as we are continuing our series in uh, the book of Revelation, in Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3, it's just called Seven Letters That Every Church Needs to Read. And, and you'll recall that if you've been with us, we're recalling it that because, well, Revelation 2 and 3, it consists of seven letters from the Lord Jesus Christ to real historical churches who had real historical issues But it wasn't just for them. As we read each of these letters, we can see that the Lord very intentionally and clearly is speaking to all believers, to all churches at all times, including ours. And uh, as we uh, went through our five pillars series back in the fall about the the, the five practices that we really want to prioritize as a church, this is really kind of a follow-up to that as we read about what the Lord had to say to these churches in history. We're mindful of what the Lord would say to us as we live out these pillars here now. We see in Revelation 2 and 3 what happens when you uphold those pillars, and we also see what happens when you don't uphold those pillars, or at least we see how the Lord feels about it and his concerns and even what he says will come about if we don't listen. The title of today's sermon is The Compromising Church. 
the compromising church. The first church that we read about was the church at Ephesus. Remember, they, Ephesus, remember they were the church that had diminished love for the Lord. And then we looked at the church at Smyrna, who were the suffering church. And the Lord Jesus had important words for his people, for you and for me, about how we contend with, how we deal with suffering. And then a week ago, we read the message he had for the church at Pergamum. And remember, Pergamum, we called it the over-tolerant church in that they were tolerating false teaching. And now we come to the church at Thyatira. The issue in Thyatira, we will see, is similar to Pergamum, but the Lord has some very specific things to say to this church that we'll call the compromising church. You know, when you think of the word compromise, sometimes compromise can be a good thing. I mean, ask anybody here who's been married for more than two weeks and you'll know that compromise is a good thing. It's a vital thing in relationships. When, when people make concessions out of consideration for each other, uh, when we give up our preferences for the sake of people we love, it makes for good friendships, makes for, for peaceful households, makes for united teams. So also in business and your work life, perhaps, when you negotiate in good faith, compromise is often an important uh, part of that, of, of making that work. And sometimes compromise is just, it's, it's a, a good way, an important way of being wise, if not shrewd. And shrewd is a biblical word. Uh, maybe you've heard the story, probably many of you heard the story, I think it was told originally by Minnie Pearl, uh, the story of these two brothers who uh, lived in a particular town, and, and they were known for being good-for-nothing people in business. They swindled and disrespected and mistreated and cheated everyone they dealt with, and lo and behold, as way led on the way, one of those brothers died. And the surviving brother was left to make funeral arrangements for his dead brother. So he went to the local pastor in the local church and uh, asked him if he would do the, the, the funeral. And uh, as there was some negotiating going on, the brother said, said, listen, listen, I know that your church is in need of money. And uh, listen, I got a check here. I'm going to give you a boatload of money. Let's say it's a million dollars. I gave you a million dollars. And I will give you this money if on one condition... That in my brother's funeral, you tell everybody that he was a saint. This good for nothing scoundrel. You want me to say he's a saint? The pastor thought for a minute and he said, Okay, deal, write the check. So the guy writes the check, hands it to the pastor. Funeral comes, the pastor stands up in the pulpit, looks down at the casket in front of him, and says, I want everybody in this room to know that the man in this casket was a good for nothing, low down cheat. He disrespected people. He swindled people. He was a calamitous person in terms of his character. But compared to his brother over here in the front row, he was a saint. <laughs> There's times when compromise is appropriate. But... Compromise is never appropriate when it comes to God's call on your life to be holy. Amen. To be set apart unto Jesus. To be walking the path of purity. To, to be in the light as he is in the light. That is an area in which compromise is never okay. Jesus said this. He says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. In other words, you'll obey me. You'll, you'll follow me. 
that Jesus asked this question one time. He said, why do you, why do you call me Lord, Lord? Lord means master. Well, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? See, Jesus sees there's some, some dissonance that he observes in the lives of some of the people who profess to be his followers. As Peter said this, he said, as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Loved ones, basic to our relationship with Christ is living for him, walking in obedience to him. We've been, by the, the power of the cross, we've been set free from the penalty of our sin. And we're also given victory over the power of sin as we have our sins forgiven and then we're given the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So we're not left without assistance. We're not left without help. It is a difficult battle fighting sin in our lives and it will be until we're in glory. But the call is the call. It's a call to holiness, a call to walking righteously before the Lord. The reality is it's, it's an all-too-common problem that professing Christians are not serious about obedience to God's word, They're not passionate to live a life marked by purity. They see godliness as something that some people do, but not as normal to Christian living. Maybe, maybe you're among those people. Maybe if I asked you honestly how serious are you about holiness in your life, you'd say maybe not that much if you're honest. Lots of people see it as something that's for later. Yeah, I know the Lord wants me to live a holy life. I'll get there eventually. No, he calls you to it now. Be set apart unto him. Some, lots of Christians see it as for others. It's for the serious Christians. Like there's a category, serious Christians and not serious Christians. No, there's only one category. You either follow Jesus or you, you don't. Some people see it as for certain kinds of Christians. I mean, to be holy, that's for the pastor, that, that's for the elders, that's for the, the worship leaders, the small group leaders. I mean, they're the ones that are called to be set apart unto Jesus. No, you're called to be set apart unto Jesus. That is, if you are indeed set apart unto him. Many don't see holiness as necessary, but if, if that is you, you could not be more wrong. You could not be more wrong. So let me ask you this. What do you say to the Christian who thinks that way? Or, or what do you say to the church that's under that kind of influence? Well, I think you say to them something like what Jesus said to the church at Thyatira. Thyatira was about 40 miles southeast from Pergamum, and I'm sure you care very little about ancient geography, but we are on a path here as we make our way around these seven churches. And if we were following the postal route in ancient days, this is uh, Thyatira, is the next city we come to after Pergamum. It was a place of commerce, a place of industry. If you lived there, there's a good chance that you worked in textiles or leather or in metals doing bronze work or in pottery, just to name a few. It was the home, if, if you're familiar with the New Testament, you might recognize the, the city of Thyatira as being the home of Lydia. We meet Lydia in the book of Acts, the significance of her. She was a businesswoman from Thyatira who was away on business, and she was the first person to convert to Jesus Christ in the continent of Europe. After the, after the resurrection. So, so some neat historical ties there. Thyatira's got a bit of history. But at the time, while this church is growing, going and growing, and we'll see it was going and growing, it was also the home for a lot of pagan worship. 
feasts and festivals and sexual immorality in the city were a real problem and a serious temptation for Christians, as we'll see in a moment. And Jesus addresses these believers with a very important message. Now, I'm going to read to you the, our text, but remember the pattern. If, you're, if this is the first time you've been in on this teaching series, I'll just tell you, we've noticed that there's a pattern in each of these letters. It's not always exactly the same, but it's, it's traceable pretty much in each of them. All of them begin with a portrait of Jesus, a presentation of Jesus. Something particular about him is spoken of that applies to the situation among the people that he's addressing. So it begins with a portrait, and then there's often positives, whatever positives there are as mentioned, and then if there's a problem, the Lord addresses the problems, and then he gives a prescription for what to do about the problem, and then each of these letters ends with a promise. See if you can see that as we read what Jesus says to Thyatira. Revelation 2, verse 18. And to the angel or to the messenger of the church in Thyatira write... The words of the Son of God, so this is the portrait, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love, and faith, and service, and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. In other words, you're growing in these things. Verse 20, but I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Now, just to pause here, if you're eating food sacrificed to idols in the ancient context, and you know that they were sacrificed to idols, you're, you're participating in idolatry. We'll see in a moment here, this is what was going on at Thyatira. Verse 21, I gave her time to repent. Who's her? It's this woman Jezebel, this prophetess. I gave her time to repent, but notice, she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead, so I would take that to mean her followers. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. Oh, let those words land on you. I am he who searches mind and and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, probably, probably, just a second here, probably, the saying was that whatever this false teaching was, it was probably referred to as the deep things of God. So teaching nonsense, and some of the believers are like, I, I don't, where is this in God's word? Oh, these, these are deep things of God. And probably John is referring these things to the deep things of Satan. That's what they are, probably. I don't know that for sure, but that's my thinking. I've lost my spot. What verse was I in? Thank you, 24. Let me start from verse 24 again. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, 
who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan. To you, I say, I do not lay hold on any, I do not lay on you, sorry, any other burden. So just that one thing. Only hold fast to what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. So you'll reign with me. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So notice that line there. It's not just for the church at Thyatira. It's for this church called Hope Niagara, too. All right, let's start with the portrait. The portrait of Jesus, verse 18. There's, there's three important features in this portrait. First, the title that Jesus uses about himself as Son of God. As near as I can tell, this is the only time Jesus is called the Son of God in the book of Revelation. Significance of that, I think it just highlights it as significant. The title Son of God, this is, this is, this is the title for Jesus. Like this is, this is his ultimate title. It speaks unequivocally of his deity. It may not sound like it to us in the year 2023 in Canada, Son of God maybe doesn't, doesn't initially strike us as being a divine title, but make no mistake, in antiquity, in the days in the New Testament, that title, Son of God, was clearly understood to mean one thing, that the person to whom it refers is claiming full equality with God. And that's what Jesus is saying here. He refers to himself here as the Son of God. Whereas sometimes in Scripture, we see the title Son of Man emphasizing Jesus' humanity. We see that title Son of God, it emphasizes his deity. And in a city like Thyatira, where there, it is rampant with pagan worship, and where Apollo, the Greek god Apollo, and the, the emperor are called sons of Zeus, or sons of the gods, it's an awesome statement from the Lord Jesus Christ to remind his people who he really is. He rules over all. And I would just make this, this point as we think about this, this first feature here about Jesus is that he is a person we must take seriously. We must take him very seriously. He is not to be trifled with. He's not to be ignored. If he is the son of God, then we must hear him we must adhere to what he says. We must trust him. We must look to him as none other than the one true exalted God above all. That's what this title means. We must take him seriously. Take his person seriously. All authority in heaven and on earth is given to this Jesus, this son of God. He is high and lifted up. And God the Father has honored his son above all, all, and he, all, all others. And he is one with the Father. Jesus is, he is a serious person. Do you know that? We must take him seriously. Think of the second feature here of Jesus after he refers to himself as the Son of God. Notice what he says about his eyes. He has eyes like a flame of fire. When he returns, the return of Jesus talked about in Revelation 19, it says there again that he returns with, with eyes like a flame of fire. Speaks to his extraordinary vision. It's, I think it, maybe a contemporary phrase might be like if somebody has laser vision. 
If you've got laser vision, we, we mean they, they can see very clearly. They see sharply. They see realities. They, they see through things. They see behind things, that, things that we might not see. Jesus sees it all. There isn't anything in, in all the world that Jesus doesn't see. There isn't anything in you that Jesus doesn't see. And of course, probably goes without saying, but I'll say it any, anyway. There isn't anything in this church that Jesus doesn't see. It means there's, there's no secrets kept from him. There's no true private activity. Nothing eludes his observation. There's no personal thought that he does not fully know. There's no secret desire that, that he is blind to. He sees everything. He sees everything. So, young person, your parents may not know. Spouse, your husband, your wife may not be aware. Church, your pastor, your elders may be clueless. But Jesus sees and knows it all. And that's going to be, we're going to see that's going to be significant in Thyatira. There's things going on there that if you just walked in there on a Sunday, you'd never guess what's going on. But it was. That's the second thing is his extraordinary vision. I would say this by way of application. Take his knowledge seriously. Take his knowledge seriously. Don't fool yourself this morning to think that God is somehow in the dark about what's real and what's not in your life. Hebrews 4 and 13 says this of God. It says, No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. This week I was on a, a trip to a GCC Pastors and Wives conference, which I'm so grateful for. And on the way there and on the way home, I had to go into this contraption, put my foot here, my foot here, and put my hands over here, and wonder who it is who's looking at the screen as they're scanning my body right now. Why are they doing that? What's he got under there? What's, what's under his clothes? Is he hiding anything? Well, Jesus don't need no scanner. He sees and he knows all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So it's not just that he knows, but we're, we're answerable to him. Let's take his knowledge seriously. That's the second feature of this portrait. The third feature are his feet. Notice what it says about his feet. His feet are like burnished bronze. Now, in Revelation 1 and 15, Jesus is already referred to as having feet like burnished bronze, but there it refers to that bronze as refined in a furnace. Most Bible commentators that I have read suggest that this speaks at least in part to purity, but in reference to his feet, so this, this purified metal, this, in reference to his feet, it speaks to the holiness of him who tramples sin in judgment. Speaks to judgment. The holy judge. Now, now put this all together, and we've got, first of all, we've got a, a holy Jesus who we must take seriously. We must take seriously his holiness, his person, his knowledge, his holiness. Take this together, and like, we must take Jesus seriously. Do you, have you noticed, the Bible is a very serious book. It's a very serious book. I'm not saying there aren't, at times, humorous things that happen in the Bible. But it is a serious book, and Jesus is a serious person. When you look at who he is as person, when you look at his knowledge, when you look at his holiness, 
there is a sense in which it's right for us to tremble before him. For the followers of Jesus, to those who know the forgiveness of sin and the glad welcome, the union with Christ that we have with him, it's not a kind of trembling that causes us to flee from him, but a kind of trembling that humbles us before him and would draw us near in confession and in truthfulness before his clear vision, before him. What a word for the church for today. What a word. Much of what is condoned in Christianity, I think particularly in Canada right now, much of what is condoned in the name of cultural relevance are things that he condemns in his holiness. He is not okay with sin in your church. He's not okay with sin in your life. He loves you. In his love, he accepts you as you are, but he loves you too much to leave you as you are. And so he works to change you. And his church, his precious bride, is too important to him to just leave it be without addressing this issue of holiness. Loved ones, make note of this. We must take Jesus seriously. It's not like, sometimes I think people treat Jesus like those robocalls. You know, we get the, I was on a trip one time, and I came home, my, a couple of my aunts were looking after the kids for us while we were away, and came home, and, and after the, hey, great, glad you're back, one of my aunts pulled me aside and said, Ross, I think you might be in some kind of legal trouble. <laughs> oh, yeah? Welcome home. What's, what are you talking about? He's like, oh, there's, there's a message on the phone came through while you're away. It's from the government. You're like, you owe the money or something like that? So I'm like, well, did you, did, you save, did you save the message? Oh, yeah, it's on there. So I go in and listen to the message. It was one of those scam calls, you know, one of those robocalls that's threatening prosecution, you owe the money and everything like that. It, it's fake. It's nothing to worry about. Now, at first, I kind of heard this. I'm like, oh, man, I mean, I, as far as I know, I'm not, not in any kind of shady business, but I don't know. Who knows? So I get on this call. Well, as soon as I heard it was one of these calls, I'm like, ah, oh, nothing to worry about, nothing to worry about. Just, just forget it. Loved ones, sometimes that's how people treat Jesus. Maybe there's a first kind of initial, like, oh, take him seriously. He knows everything. But it's not long before the devil and the flesh conspire to just have us dismiss Jesus like a robocall. He is not a robocall. You cannot just press delete on your answer machine and he goes away. You will stand before him, and if you are his child, he's serious about your holiness. Serious. We must take him seriously. His person, his knowledge, his holiness. Well, here, this is quite the presentation of Jesus. I wonder what's going on at Thyatira that he reveals himself to them in this way. Well, have a look at verse 19 again. He, he gives them several positives. Actually, I think, of all the seven letters, to my eyes, this is the longest commendation of, in any of the letters he encourages them. He commends them for their works. See that? I know your works. Your love and faith and service and patient endurance. And notice, and your latter works exceed the first. So they're, so they're growing in these things. It's on the increase. It's on the rise. So this is, I mean, if we showed up on a Sunday, we'd be driving home in the car afterwards saying, that is an awesome church. We, we got to get in there. we, we got to show up at the Discover class and get in on Ascensions. I want to be part of that church. It would have been a church that was featured in Christianity Today and, and talked about amongst book publishers. There was a lot of good things happening there, but there was trouble brewing, wasn't there? 
And that's what he talks about in verse 20. There's a problem. He says, but, but, nevertheless, but, I have this against you that you notice you tolerate that woman, Jezebel. They were having a just a little family conversation a while back, just chatting about stuff. And uh, the question was asked, have you ever had a kid? What, what's a name that you'd never give to a child in, if, if you had a child, right? Sort of kicking around, you know, talking to Leanne and the kids. And I'm pretty sure it was Leanne that said, oh, never, ever name your daughter Jezebel. Yeah, not a good name in the Bible. If you name your daughter Jezebel for religious reasons, I have concerns for you and your child. Jezebel, not a good woman. She's a big problem. If your son brings home a Jezebel, you better pray. <laughs> you better pray. Well, what's the big deal with Jezebel? If you don't know the Bible real well, you might be wondering, well, it is an odd-sounding name, but what's the deal with her? Well, in the Old Testament, in the book of 1 Kings, we read about this woman, Jezebel. She was the Gentile wife of King Ahab in Israel. And Ahab, in the Old Testament, in his lifetime, was said to have done more evil in his time than any other king who'd come before him. And he was aided and abetted and encouraged by his wife, Jezebel. Reminds me, when I think about Jezebel marrying Ahab, of course, remember that the scriptures, God was very clear about his kings. They were not to marry women outside of the nation. Why? Because he knew they'd lead them astray. They'll, they'll bring in their, their pagan worship and idolatry, and their, their influence will be real. Well, well, that was exactly what happened. Ahab went off and married this Jezebel. Reminds me, when I was in Bible college, one of our, one of our, our, our teachers, we were talking about marriage and stuff like that, and I remember somebody asked him one day, hey, what's, what, what's your advice about marriage, about getting married? He said, I got one piece of advice. Choose wisely. Choose wisely. Those are good words. I've never forgotten that, never will. Young people choose wisely. Well, Ahab did not choose wisely. And with Jezebel came the worship of Baal, not only in the household, but in the kingdom. And you read what happened in Israel, and Israel was influenced away from their faithfulness to the Lord, from holiness, because of the influence of Jezebel. She brought compromise to Israel. Now, Jesus says to Thyatira, hey, listen, you've got a modern-day Jezebel in your midst. I doubt that the prophetess that he's referring to, that her name was actually Jezebel. Stranger things have happened, but I doubt that her name was actually that. The false teacher may not even have been a woman. Most Bible students believe it was. I would concur, it probably was, but, but I don't know that for sure, for sure. But what I do know is Jesus is drawing a connection here between what happened in the Old Testament Israel under the influence of Jezebel and what was happening in Thyatira. And dare I say, what's happening in the church today in 2023. She calls herself a prophetess. In other words, claiming divine authority, she is leading believers away from the Lord into sexual sin and idolatry. Now you might be wondering, okay, how is she doing that? What is she doing? Well, I, I think to make sense of it, it helps to understand a little bit more about the context, the historical context in Thyatira. I mentioned at the outset that Thyatira was a place of industry and commerce. And many of the residents, probably most of the residents, if you lived in Thyatira, there's a very good chance you worked with your hands, maybe in textiles, maybe as a blacksmith or in metal works, uh, working with bronze and that sort of thing, and leathers, 
in linens, in, in dyes that would be used in cloth. It was a place of industry and commerce. But here's the thing. In Thyatira, as was the case in other places as well in those days, if you wanted to get work in your industry, in your trade, you had to belong to a trade guild. 2023, we have unions, right? We trade unions. Well, in antiquity, that's kind of somewhat similar. In antiquity, you had to be part of a trade guild if you wanted work. If you weren't part of the trade guild, you would have a very hard time finding work. You'd be shut out. And think about that. You can't find work. You don't work, you don't eat. So it's serious stuff. The problem, though, with these trade guilds is that one of the major requirements of membership was attending guild banquets and festivals. And each of these guilds had their own patron deity, a god that they worshipped, that they paid homage to. Now, you can imagine lots of people would show up at the trade guild, lots of people would come and go, and they would, some of them would take it really seriously, but you can imagine there's lots of people that don't take it too seriously, right? There's lots of people that show up at church on a, on a Sunday or at Christmas or at Easter, don't take it all too seriously. It's a similar sort of thing in these guilds. But the reality is, is that in these guild festivals and these banquets, there would be real homage and real worship paid to these gods. Now, imagine you're a Christian, and you've got to feed your family, and in order to feed your family, you got to work. But in order to get work, you can't get enough work. So what you got to do, i got to be part of this guild. But if I'm going to be part of the trade guild, I'm going to be expected and required to show up at the company Christmas banquet. But it's not Christmas, though. It's, it's for whatever. i, I got to show up there at this thing. And when I show up there, I'm going to be expected and required to pay homage to eat a meal that's part of worshiping a false god. And added to that, there's talk of sexual immorality. Uh, Bible scholars tell us that, that often associated with these uh, pagan worship festivals was, was also uh, Im sexually immoral activity. So what we've got here is a real dilemma for these believers. What do I do? Well, along comes Jezebel. And Jezebel says, I've got a word from God. He understands what you're up against here. And God wants you to know that it's okay to just go and participate. I mean, he knows that you don't really mean it. You just... It's okay to, to go there. And, and I don't know how she argued it. Maybe she, she argued that, hey, listen, what, the, the old Gnostic idea that what's done with the body is nothing to do with the heart, which is totally false. Your body is integral to you as a person. And what you do with your body matters greatly to God because you matter to God. He's bought you with a price, not just your heart. He bought your body to be set apart unto him. Maybe, maybe she warned them, you know, if you, hey, listen, if you lose your livelihood, okay, you can abstain from going to the guild, but hey, if you lose your livelihood, it's going to hurt the church ministry. And we want this ministry to flourish, don't we? We need the offerings up. We've got a building fund to take care of. So, I mean, you, you could go, go and do it for Jesus. Maybe, maybe she pointed out that others are attending and doing fine. And, and as a Christian, you can imagine yourself looking around saying, well, well I mean, that, that, that guy, he goes to the guild all the time, and God hasn't struck him dead yet. And these people, over they, they go and they participate. It doesn't seem to bother them too much. So maybe, I don't know, maybe it is okay. And Jezebel's there. Of course it's okay. Perhaps she even gave them a skewed view of their mission. Perhaps she said something like, well, I mean, Jesus, he ate with sinners, didn't he? <laughs> yeah, but Jesus didn't worship any other god. 
You see, it's not, you see what, what, my, what was happening in Thyatira? Can you imagine the pressure you would feel if you were a believer there? And the temptation to listen to Jezebel. She's providing me an out. Relief from this pressure. I wonder if you have any Jezebels in your life. You say, how would I know? I wrote down three common traits of Jezebels. One, you may have a Jezebel in your life if you've got someone who comforts you in your sin but doesn't call you out of your sin. We call it mistakes instead of sinfulness. Ah, nobody's perfect. Well, that's true, nobody's perfect. <laughs> there is some truth that misery loves company, but we're not called to be miserable. It's one thing to encourage someone about the forgiveness and the grace that we have in Jesus. But it's another thing to never call that person to turn away from sin, to follow Jesus. You may also have a Jezebel second in your life if you've got someone who reassures you but never rebukes you. We need reassurance. We need to know about the grace that's abundant for us in Christ, and it is abundant for us in Christ. But we also need at times rebuke, don't we? Especially when we're heading down a dark path that leads away from the Lord. You may have a Jezebel in your life. You've got somebody who reassures you but never rebukes you. You may thirdly have a Jezebel in your life when you've got someone who will tell you some of what the Bible says but not all of what the Bible says. So a man maybe is leaving his spouse and says, well, the Bible's really clear that God wants me to be happy. I do believe that God wants you to be joyful. God wants you to be happy in a sense. But you know what else God wants? He wants you to be holy set apart unto him. Maybe somebody will come along and say, oh, yeah, the, I mean, the Bible, yeah, the Bible's important. I've heard this. I have heard this, I tell you. Yeah, the Bible's important, but we live, we live in a different time. Our times are so removed from the days of the Bible. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. As if God, as if the Holy Spirit had no idea what was coming. Right? As, as if the Holy Spirit right now, can you imagine the Father, Son, and Spirit giving counsel together right now and said, man, we never saw the 21st century coming. If we knew this was going to happen, we would have written, said it differently back then. Do you really think that? What do you make God to be? Some will come along and say, hey, God understands your life, your messy situations. Yeah, he does understand. But that doesn't mean he doesn't call you to righteousness and holiness. You see, there's people that will come and tell us part of what the Bible says, but not all of what it says. You need to watch it. You need to be careful. That's what Jezebel does. The truth is, is that when many people embark on a path of sin, tell me if I'm right, when many people embark on a path of sin, they often go looking for someone who will tell them it's okay. You find one person in the church who will affirm you, and that's what I'm looking for right there. That's Jezebel. So, quick application. Are you a Jezebel? What are you calling me? I'm just asking you. Are you a Jezebel? Loved ones, are you, are you listening to a Jezebel? Is there somebody who's actually, when you stand back and think about really leading you away from the Lord? Instead of to him. Be careful who you listen to. 
What's the prescription? Well, the prescription, that the problem is, of course, they got this Jezebel who's teaching this stuff, and believers are following it. Notice that the slight, there's a lot of similarity between Pergamum and Thyatira, isn't there? In Pergamum, though, the emphasis was on the doctrinal laxity. The emphasis in Thyatira now is, yes, there's doctrinal error, but also there's moral liberty. In Pergamum, they were just tolerating the false teaching. In Thyatira, they were, thol- they're, they're tolerating the false teaching and beginning to walk in it. And this is what's going on. What does Jesus say? Well, verses 21 to 23, he says her time is up. He says, verse 21, I gave her time to repent, but she refuses. See, the Lord is patient. The Lord is patient. But his patience here is the time is coming when he's going to deal with it. What does he say he'll do? Verse 22, he said, I'll throw her onto a sickbed. And those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. This, this means that Jesus is going to bring real trouble, real tribulation in, in his church. Yeah, that's certainly what it sounds like, isn't it? And it wouldn't be the first time. I think back to a story you read in Acts chapter 5 where two people, Ananias and Sapphira, lied to the apostles, lied to the Holy Spirit, and the Lord struck them dead. Now, praise God, those kinds of things are not overly common. But Jesus is a serious person. And your holiness matters to him. So you're saying, Pastor, you're saying he's going to strike me dead? What I'm saying is that you need to take him seriously. And it's called a holiness in your life. Remember I mentioned last week the believers at Corinth in 1 Corinthians were worshiping the Lord in a way that displeased him. And he said, that's why some of you are sick and dying. So what's the Lord saying here? He's saying, you need to deal with this. We must take sin seriously. We must take sin seriously. It is not a light thing to sin and to keep on sinning. That's what Ahab did. Ahab thought nothing of his sin. Look at 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 31. And when he married Jezebel, it says this. It says, and as if it had been a light thing, notice that phrase, a light thing for him to talk, sorry, sorry, to walk in the sins, that's my mistake, to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. He took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him, as if it had been a light thing. He didn't take sin seriously. God has spoken, but this is what I want to do. Notice what Peter says. He says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Listen, the Lord brought you out of the grave. Don't go walking back into it. There was a day when you didn't know any better, but Christian, follower of Jesus, you know better now. You know where the joy is at now. And you know what he calls you to. So, so he says, obedient, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who calls you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. One more verse. How about 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3? For this is the will of God. What's God's will for my life? Your sanctification. In other words, he wants you to be set apart unto him. Jesus saved you to sanctify you, to conform you to his likeness. Notice that you abstain from sexual immorality. Here's where we're going with this. The call here is for you and I, for our church and for us individually and personally to take sin seriously. Those who practice it must repent because the Lord calls you to holiness. Wonderfully, you're not on your own in that. 
He gives you his spirit, who for some of you right now, you're feeling what we call conviction. Because there are particular things right now the Lord is bringing to the surface. You're like, you know what? That's got to change. That's the spirit of God stirring in you, giving you a conviction to, to align your, how you feel about it to the truth of God's word. But it's not just enough to feel bad about it. Now we've got to, by faith, take steps to change it. And God will give you help to do that. But there's a call here for us to repent. We must take sin seriously. Those who practice it must repent. Those who promote it must stop. And here's really where it gets really sensitive. The reality is, is that in our day, there are many Christians, even well-known Christians, who are teaching things that are very much like what the Lord is dealing with in Thyatira. I think particularly today about just one example of this is the teaching that is so that's becoming more and more prevalent that same-sex sexual relationships enjoy God's blessing. So long as they are committed to each other, that's what matters. Loved ones, the Bible is super clear, really clear. Like from Genesis through Revelation, it's really clear that it grieves the heart of God. Now, as I raise this, for some, this is a sensitive issue. And um, God willing, later this year, we're going to have some more specific teaching on this. Our plan is later this year, we're going to teach through uh, the early part of Genesis and and there we will get just some more, we'll spend some more time just carefully and slowly thinking about what God says about our bodies, what God says about his design for sexuality, what God says about marriage and what that is and what that isn't. So there's more for us to say. I want you to know this morning that if, if you struggle with this, I am confident of this, you are not alone. In Hope Niagara, my heart for our church is that anyone who struggles with same-sex attraction would find themselves amongst friends and people who care here in our church and would feel welcome to be here to sit under the teaching of God's word. But that last line there, sitting under the teaching of God's word, it behooves us to teach the truth of God's word, not things that are false that lead away from the Lord, but teach the truth of the gospel that we lead us to him into holiness. I can't teach stuff that God says, I can't teach that things are okay when God says it's not okay. That's what was going on in Thyatira. And listen, it's going on right now in our country and in Christendom. And when I think about applying this in 2023, this, is, this isn't the only way, but it sure is a loud and public way that we're seeing this happening in our church. And the, the call here is that those who promote it must stop. So we, we can't teach that here. There's lots to be said about this. You hear my heart on this. There's lots to be said about this. But the, the truth is what we must proclaim. Now, here we are. We've got a strong word from the Lord. There's a call to repent. And Jesus says, listen, I don't lay anything else on you. It's gonna be real tough for these believers and Thyatira to not go to that trade guild. They may lose their work, they may lose their livelihood, they may lose their home. Question, is Jesus worth it? Amen. That's what you gotta ask yourself. 
when you're confronted with temptation, when you're called and maybe in your work environment, you're being enticed into things that are dishonest, maybe even things that are immoral. When you're in discussion groups at college, university, when you are maybe on a hockey team, when you're interacting with others, there are ready temptations to pull us away, to, to dishonor the Lord in different ways. It isn't going to be easy, but the Lord, that's why the Lord closes all these letters, I believe, with such rich encouragement. In verses 26 to 29, I'll just read it and make brief comment, and then I'll close. He says, the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, okay, he's not saying perfectly, God has grace for us, But as a pattern of my life, as my heart's desire, the one who conquers and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations and he will rule them with an iron rod as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my father. What's Jesus saying? There's coming a day when you will reign with me. Right now, dear Christian, you may feel oppressed and weak, but one day the script will be flipped and you'll reign with me. He says in verse 28, and I will give him the morning star. At the end of Revelation, Revelation 22, the morning star is explained. What's the morning star? It's Jesus himself. What a prize we have to look forward to in the end, Jesus himself. You say, don't I have Jesus already? Yes, if you're trusting in him, you do. But what a joy it's going to be when you see him face to face. And the greatness of your reward will be given to you, namely the very presence of Jesus himself forever. So question. Is it worth it? Amen, it is. Let me close with these three closing exhortations. Number one, don't misinterpret God's silence. Don't misinterpret God's silence. What do you say to the compromising church? Take Jesus seriously, take sin seriously, take hope seriously. As you do that, though, don't misinterpret God's silence. Just because God hasn't come in and laid people aside, just because Jesus hasn't come in and broke up the party doesn't mean he's pleased with everything that's going on. He's patient, giving time to repent. Don't misinterpret God's silence. Just because someone gets away with it, it seems, for a time, doesn't mean they always will. Second, and this is maybe maybe the biggest thing I'll say, In closing, don't misinterpret God's blessing. Don't misinterpret God's blessing. This was a church that had a lot of things going on. And it would be easy for the believers to be like, God must be, look at us. We're faithful, we're persevering, we're loving, we're serving. God must be so pleased with us. In many ways, he was. But there is a real problem. As a pastor of this church and the elders, we do not assume that just because God has been so kind to us in these recent weeks and months, we do not assume that all is well. And you shouldn't either. There is a theology out there that says, if it's going good, it must be good. Not necessarily. Don't misinterpret God's blessing. He blesses the power of his word. He blesses the preaching of his son. And there are times in which blessing gives way to discipline where there's been sin. Finally, and I promise I am done now, finally. Hold fast to the gospel. 
Hold fast to the gospel. When I say hold fast to the gospel, I mean hold tight to the good news about Jesus. The serious word about Jesus is that he sees, he knows, and for some of us, he's calling you to change. He'll help you with that change, but he calls you to change. At the same time, as you find conviction in sin, oh, loved one, run to Jesus. He's the one that brings the forgiveness of sins. He's the one that died for that sin. He's the one that's, that's raised up from the dead to give you resurrection life. The life that he now lives, he gives to you to live for him. This is the good news about Jesus. It's not, when you hear that call to repent, it's not a call for you to perform better. It's a call for you to, by faith, trusting in the Lord, Take steps in obedience to him. That's what we're calling you to do. So hold tight to the gospel. Fly to Jesus. In fact, in fact to close today, what, that's what I want to do. I want to look to Jesus with you. We're going to do something a little different as we close. When Leanne and I got married, we, um, we had a really long wedding ceremony. And uh, one of the things, reasons it was long is because we sang lots in our wedding ceremony. And one of the songs we sang when we got married is a song I want to sing with you just to close today. The band's not going to come up. It's just going to be you and me. So you better sing, Okay. And um, it's, a, it's, an, it's an old hymn. It's called, My Jesus, I Love Thee. And here's the thing that struck me as I was preparing. I've never seen this before. You've probably seen it. It just hit me this week preparing this sermon. It is, as much as it's a song of worship to Jesus, it's also a, a hymn of consecration unto him. In other words, it's a hymn and part of renouncing sin. I'll show you what I mean. Can we, can we put that on the screen there? Yeah, thanks. Thanks so much. My Jesus, I love thee. I know thou art mine. That's good news. That's gospel news. For thee, all the follies of sin I resign. You see? It's renouncing sin. So there's this sinful path and there's these temptations and conflicting desires. But when I look to you, Jesus... You're the prize. You're the treasure. And so for you, the follies, the foolishness of sin, I resign that. I, I renounce that. My gracious Redeemer. See, he's the rescuer. He's the one. In fact, a means by which he pulls us out of the darkness is sermons like this when he calls us out of the darkness. My gracious Redeemer, my Savior art thou. If ever I love thee, my Jesus, tis now.